You're listening to the Bible uncut and unfiltered. We believe the Bible doesn't need to be watered down or cleaned up to be understood. Our goal is to provide a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. I'm your host, Colin Connor. Now, on to the episode. At the end of Genesis 3, we left the humans outside of the garden, cut off from life. But we also know that God stayed present with them. And it's that very presence of God that leads to the conflict we're going to see in chapter 4 as Adam and Eve's children fight over God's blessing. And there are a number of oddities in this story for us to consider, and a lot that we can learn about ourselves and our relationships with others along the way. So, let's get into chapter 4 this week. Genesis chapter 4. There is a lot here, and just a couple of notes up front Last week, we mentioned that there are two camps concerning Adam and Eve's spiritual state when they left the garden. There are some who see them as repentant after the incident with the tree, and they see this as signified through Adam's naming Eve life. It's a way of thanking God for their still being alive, even though the penalty for what they did was supposed to be death. But there's another camp that says that they were actually still hardened rebels afterward, and that by naming his wife Eve, or life, Adam was actually giving essentially a middle finger to God, of saying that now Eve would be the source of life instead of him. And whichever position you hold on that matters for this chapter, particularly in the naming of Cain, and we're going to get to this right off the bat. Cain's name, or Cain in Hebrew, means to acquire, to possess, it can even mean to create. So hold on to that for a second, because it's going to be really important. But the key for this whole debate is really going to revolve around how you translate one little phrase, and that is at the end of verse 1, where Eve says that she has gotten a man from the Lord. And we'll talk about that more in a second. Names, in general, play a big role in this chapter. And many scholars point out that the names actually fit the characters a little too well. Like you have Abel, whose name in Hebrew is Hevel, It's the same word from the book of Ecclesiastes that is often translated vanity or meaninglessness. It has the idea of something that is really short-lived, like if you see smoke from a cigarette or something like that. It's there, but you can't grab it. It's there and it's gone. And as we see in the text, that's basically what happens with Abel. His life is over with very quickly. His entire life is summed up in just a handful of verses here. And he's not the only one. Seth, Enosh, Lamech, and basically every name in this chapter has a significance that matches the character quality of that person. And so you're kind of left wondering, were the mothers of all of these characters prophets? Where at the time of their birth they were able to predict what these people's lives would be like? Or it could just be more likely that these are the names given to these characters over time so that it summarizes their lives just by their very names. Now, it does not have to mean that they were not actually historical people. They very well could be, and these names could just be later added in, almost like nicknames that just tell you something about them. Now, whether you believe that these were the names they had from birth or they were added in later, you can still find a lot of meaning from these texts, and we're actually going to draw quite a bit out of the section with all of the names from Cain's line. And one other thought I'll throw in here before we get into the main part of the study is a note from Professor Daniel Smith Christopher. Uh, He noted in a class he was teaching that most ancient histories, once they were written down, were written in the form of poetry. But there were many Egyptian ones that were actually written in prose style, you know, something that isn't poetry. 
And the author of Genesis kind of takes a page out of that Egyptian playbook by writing these stories now in a prose format rather than poetry. Now, there's a lot of poetry interspersed throughout Genesis, but as a whole, it is narrative writing. Dr. Smith Christopher thought that this might be because the Egyptian stories focused more on the humans, whereas a lot of other ancient mythology poems focused on the gods. And now we're entering a part of the Genesis story that focuses more on the humans' interactions with each other outside of the garden. It's possible. I don't know exactly why this was written in prose rather than poetry, but it is an interesting point that he brings up. Now let's get into the fun stuff from verse 1. Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. She again bare his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Well, let's look at a few things just from these couple of verses. Okay, remember the whole debate about whether or not Adam and Eve were repentant and what their relationship with God was at this point? Well, here's where it comes to a head, because a lot of translations differ on how to translate Eve's statement, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Just looking at a few different translations I have up here, we have, I have acquired a man from the Lord, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord, I have gotten a man with the help of Jehovah, by the Lord's help I have acquired a son, I have given birth to a male child with the Lord. So a lot of these are basically trying to get across the point, Eve gave birth and she is attributing it somehow to Yahweh. Remember that Lord, when it's in all caps, is the name Yahweh. And that is a fair possibility, but there's another option as well that holds up very well grammatically in the text, and I think might even fit a little bit better. It's very possible that Eve could be saying, I have created a man like Yahweh. And so in this instance, she would be putting herself in the place of God, comparing herself with God, just as God created a man in the first two chapters. Here, Eve now says, I am the one who is able to create a man. And it all hinges on how you translate that word from. Some even go so far as to say with the help of, but that kind of reads into the word. It's really seeming to be a comparative here, where she's saying, I have created a man in comparison to Yahweh. So the more that I have looked at this text, I'm, I'm not sure I can safely say I am set on any one position, but I am intrigued by the thought that she could have seen herself as almost like a rival to Yahweh at this point. He cut them off from the garden, but now she was able to create life on her own. And a big thing that pushes me in that direction is the fact that she says she has gotten a man, or created a man. Why not a child? It's really weird if you've just given birth to a baby, and you call it a man, rather than a child or a baby. There were other words that she could have used here, but she used the word for man that is used in the creation accounts. So it seems to me that she may very well have been saying, I have created a man just like Yahweh did. And that, more than likely, is a way of her exhibiting independence from Yahweh. As an aside, there are also some people who will from time to time say she thought that the child itself was Yahweh. They would translate Yahweh as basically being like appositional to man, where she would say, I have gotten a man, Yahweh. And the reasons for that get into some really nerdy stuff, but it doesn't hold up very well grammatically, and I think it's also mainly based on trying to read the Messiah into Genesis 3.15. Since we come from after the time of Jesus, we tend to read Jesus into these texts, and we see him as the fix to the problem of Genesis 3.15. But like we talked about last week, Genesis 3.15 isn't necessarily a messianic promise in the way that we normally think of it as. It's more just talking about the ongoing fight of good and evil amongst humans, 
and the way that we can end up on either side of that fight by our actions. But even if it was messianic, there is nothing in that verse that says the Redeemer would be Yahweh. Obviously, in Christian doctrine, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, he is one with God, but that's just reading too much into these passages here. That is not present in the text at this point. I think the main point, whichever position on all of this you take, is that Cain is being put in comparison or or contrast to Yahweh, because Eve sees him as a sign of the life that she is able to give, but sadly, if you know the story, he is actually going to end up taking life. Verse 2 notably leaves off Adam's sexual relationship with Eve and her conceiving another child. It just says that she again bare his brother Abel. So some people have looked at this and suggested that maybe Cain and Abel were twins. I don't know that you can prove that one way or the other from the text, but it is an interesting thought, and especially with the absence of any mention of another sexual relationship or conception, it could possibly fit. Now, before we get any further into this, we need to stop and get rid of some baggage that we are bringing to the text. If you have any familiarity with this story at all, you probably already are coming to this with a picture of Cain as the bad guy in your mind. But I want you to set that aside. Pretend like this is the first time you've ever read the story, you don't know who these people are, you don't know what's about to happen. So as much as possible, try to keep out of your mind that Cain is just automatically a bad person. Because we're going to find out that a lot of what we usually ream him out for is not actually anything he did wrong. He doesn't do wrong until he kills his brother. Up until that point, we have no reason to think of him as the bad guy. In fact, if you were an ancient person reading or hearing this story read to you, you would more than likely be favoring Cain because he was the firstborn. You would think that he was going to be the one favored by God. In fact, he is even called, in verse 2, a tiller of the ground or a worker of the ground, or a farmer in some translations. And while that might not seem like a huge deal to you, we have to remember that the first humans, when they were placed in the Garden of Eden, they were told to work and to keep it. And it's that same word, work. And the word for ground here is Adama. So Cain was being a worker of the ground, just like God had told them to do previously. So I think he's actually put in a little bit of a positive light here in verse 2. In verse 3, in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering to Yahweh. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And Yahweh had respect to Abel and to his offering, but to Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. I'll pause there. It's worth noting that we have no idea when exactly this is happening. The verse begins with, in the process of time. Well, that doesn't tell us much. It's kind of like saying once upon a time or a long time ago. Yeah, it's a very general statement. We have absolutely no idea how much time has passed between the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 here. The only even remotely helpful clue we have, and it's not even that helpful, is in Genesis 5-3 when it says that Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. Seth is the third child we are told about in this story. But even that doesn't help for several reasons. First, we don't know what year counted as year one of Adam's life. The text presents him as if he was a mature adult at his creation. So when God created him, was he considered one year old? Or was he 18 or 30, 50, 100? We don't know. Was he considered one year old even if he looked 30? It doesn't say. We also don't know how long they were in the garden before they failed the test. 
It could have been all in one day. It could have been five years. I think the text is trying to imply it was a short amount of time, but it's all guesswork on our part to figure out how long. And in fact, we don't even know for sure that Cain, Abel, and Seth were their first three children. These are just the ones that the text presents to us as the first three because they're the ones who are important to the story. In fact, as we get into chapter 5, we'll see that Adam and Eve had several other sons and daughters in their lifetime. So just because these are the only three mentioned doesn't necessarily mean they were the only ones there. And in this story, we don't know how old Cain and Abel were. I think a lot of people kind of get the idea they were teenagers, and maybe that's just from old flannel graphs they saw in Sunday school. But the text doesn't say. They could have been 10 years old, they could have been 20, heck, they could have been 100 for all we know. Ultimately, I don't know that makes a huge difference to the story, but the longer time goes on, the more you have opportunity for Adam and Eve to change in the way that they viewed the world. Because the fact that Cain and Abel bring offerings suggests that they were still worshipping Yahweh, even though they were outside of the garden. And it's never specifically said that Adam and Eve were doing it too, or that they learned it from their parents. But I think it's kind of implied that Adam and Eve passed this along to them. But I suppose you could also say that maybe Adam and Eve totally gave up on this, and this was just Cain and Abel trying to get in back good with the god who banished their parents from the garden. I think we can read into this a little bit that their offering took place at the gate of the garden, because it's never specifically said exactly where the offering took place. But if we go just a little bit down in the story, when Cain and God are talking, and God says in verse 7, if you don't do what is right, sin crouches at the door. I think a lot of devotional books will try to say this as something like the door of your heart, you know, like you have sin crouching like an animal just outside the door of your heart. But door is never used in the Bible metaphorically. It's always talking about a literal door to something. So several scholars think that they may have been presenting these offerings right at the gate of the garden as if they were trying to get back in, and God is warning that just like their parents failed in the garden, Cain now has a decision to make right at the gate of that same place. I don't know that we can say that definitively, but it makes sense to me. And interestingly enough, the phrase that is translated in the process of time, it came to pass, something like that in different translations, it's actually literally at the end of days. So I wonder if that's suggesting they were sacrificing on the Sabbath at the end of the days of the week. Can't say that for sure, but it makes sense to me. Now let's talk about these sacrifices, because a lot of people see Cain's first mistake as happening here. But Cain doesn't actually do anything wrong in this verse. See, it's often assumed that the problem is that Abel knew to offer a blood sacrifice, and Cain sinned by not sacrificing an animal. But there's two problems with that. First, those are Levitical laws, and we're nowhere near Leviticus. This is Genesis. The Mosaic Torah has not been given yet. There are no stipulations on sacrifices. I realize some people might say, well, couldn't God have said to them, only offer this type of sacrifice, only offer an animal? Yes, it is very possible he could have said that and just didn't record it. However, the second problem kind of removes all that. Because despite what a lot of people think, most of the offerings in the Torah, in the Levitical Codes, weren't blood sacrifices. That shows a fundamental misunderstanding we have of the ancient Jewish sacrificial system. There were all kinds of different sacrifices that someone could give, and only a couple of them were related to the killing of an animal. In fact, there was a very common type of offering you can make just to say thank you to God for taking care of you, and it was in the form of a grain offering. 
So sacrifices did not have to be blood in order for them to be accepted. There were several different kinds. And the same word used of Cain's grain sacrifice here is used in Leviticus of acceptable offerings that God would take. So we should be expecting both of their offerings to be accepted. Or at least Cain's because he's the oldest one. So at this point, he has done nothing wrong. There is absolutely nothing wrong in his sacrifice. There is nothing that said you had to bring an animal. In fact, there's nothing even specifically that says they had to sacrifice at all. I think we're meant to consider where they got this idea that it would mean something to the god that kicked them out of the garden if they brought gifts to that god. And again, maybe at some point God did actually say, here is something that you can do. But he accepts different forms of offerings. So, so far, Cain has not done anything wrong here in this verse. But we do start to get little hints that Abel might be the one who is favored by God. In our discussion of chapter 2, and I think a little bit into chapter 3, we talked about the theme of the firstborn in scripture, and how in ancient Near Eastern cultures, and, and really even some cultures still today, the firstborn male child is favored in the family to take over when the father dies. But all throughout scripture, and especially here in Genesis, God has a way of choosing literally anyone other than the firstborn. It can be a secondborn, really just anyone who is the latecomer to the party is the one that he favors. And that seems to be his way of overturning social norms and saying that just because society privileges this type of person doesn't mean that I am required to. I am going to show blessings to the people that society overlooks. So we already had a little bit of that hinted at in the first couple of chapters. And so we have that running around the back of our minds as we see the younger son bringing an offering behind his brother. It says that Abel also brought of the firstlings. So you have a secondborn bringing a firstborn of his flock. And the language that's used that he brought of the firstlings of the flock and of the fat thereof, that is straight out of Leviticus. And again, this is long before the time of Leviticus. That has not been written yet. This is still quite a ways from Moses' life. But the later editors are familiar with the stories of Leviticus, and so they're writing these little details in, even though they're anachronistic. It's a totally different timeline, but they're writing it in to get you thinking. It's like Abel is being presented as the ideal Torah observer, even though the Torah has not been written yet. It's also curious that God judges the person before he judges the offering. Note that it says he had respect to Abel and his offering, but to Cain and his offering he had not respect. So it's actually the person, first and foremost, that God looks at before the sacrifice. This reminds me of other passages of scripture, like in 1 Samuel, where it says that God looks on the heart when other people look on the outward appearance, or of Jesus saying that it's better to interrupt a worship service and go get something right with a person that you have offended than to give to God while still having offended that person and not doing anything about it. A lot of ancient gods and goddesses could be appeased just by bringing the right sacrifice to them. But the God of the Bible is more interested in the heart behind the sacrifice. Every week there are people who give of their time, money, and energy, maybe even several times a week, to religious institutions. And the people within those look on them with favor. But God tends to privilege the ones on the fringes, even of a religious community, who do the best that they can with what they have. In Cain and Abel's story, we have to realize that there is no reason given for God's privileging one offering over the other. We often look at it as being because Abel's was a blood sacrifice and Cain's was not, 
but that is never explicitly stated in the text. No reason is given. And so we are adding to scripture when we read that in. I think this is actually the core conflict at the heart of this text, that sometimes God seems to favor one person over another. Sometimes other people seem to have more acceptance and success in life than we do, even when we're the ones who have done everything right. We have checked off the boxes. Maybe you go to church every time the doors are open. Maybe you read your Bible every day. Maybe you pray every day. Maybe you're a good moral person who hasn't done all the things that everybody else does. And sometimes we can think that if we check all of those boxes, we automatically deserve God's acceptance. Cain checked all of the right boxes. He offered a legitimate sacrifice, and yet God blessed his brother Abel. Sometimes that happens in life. Sometimes the other person is the one who is favored. And the question comes down to, what are you going to do about that? That is the question that Cain had. Are you going to assume that just because God blessed somebody else, or somebody else has success, or favor, or gets a promotion at job, or the bonus, or is able to buy a new car, or somebody else is able to have kids when you've wanted them and haven't been able to, or their kids are more well-behaved than yours are, or you've experienced a lot of loss in your life when other people haven't had that same thing happen, are you going to assume that God's blessing of someone else automatically means his disfavor for you? Because get this, it is never said in the text that God rejected Cain's offering. See, in Hebrew, the phrase that is translated, had not respect, literally means that he didn't look upon. So he looked upon Abel's offering, and he didn't look upon Cain's offering. The Bible does not specifically say that God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's offering. It just says that he favored Abel's. In fact, when we get into verse 7, God's promise of acceptance to Cain implies that he had enough blessing for both of them. He had a blessing in store for both Cain and Abel. He just gave it first to Abel in order to overthrow the social norms that said Cain should have been privileged. But Cain apparently believed that being the firstborn should have granted him that preference. Yahweh doesn't work that way. He often chooses the second person first, but then he gives the first one an option for blessing as well. And Cain was just so impatient and upset that he didn't get picked first that he missed out on the fact that God didn't actually reject him. He still had room for him on the team. He might not have gone and picked his team captain, but he also wasn't kicked off the team. Yet he assumed he was. And so often that is what we do. We see other people having success in life, and we assume that there is something in the cards of the universe against us, when really maybe there's room for blessing for everybody if we would just look for it instead of assuming that favor towards someone else has to mean disfavor toward us. Let's get into the heart of Cain's conflict here, because it all centers around his response to what happened. So far, he has not done anything wrong. Here's where things start to go south for him. He was very angry, and his countenance fell. A couple of different translations get creative with this. Uh, some say he became very angry and felt rejected. He became furious, and he scowled in anger. He was furious, and he looked despondent. Uh, he was angry, and his face was downcast. In Hebrew, it's literally, he was very hot, and his head fell. In Hebrew, it's common to describe anger or frustration in terms of heat, especially in the area of the face. And that makes sense. When we get angry, blood rushes to the face, you get very flushed in your face, right? So it makes sense how that's worded. He is very angry and his countenance fell. His head dropped. Again, just a very natural reaction when we're frustrated, when we're sad, 
we put our heads down in defeat, right? So just naturally the chin drops and we feel that frustration along with Cain. But again, he still hasn't done anything wrong yet. It's not sinful to be angry. It is not sinful to be sad or disappointed or frustrated. He's just expressing his emotions that are quite natural at God's favoring somebody else. Now, perhaps you could say that he should have been happy for his brother, but no one likes to come in second place, so I don't fault Cain for, for feeling that way at all. Let's get into verse 6. Yahweh says to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, won't you be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin lies at the door. And to you shall be his desire, and you shall rule over him. I'll point out here, based on what we mentioned before, God does not question the offering. He doesn't say, why didn't you offer me a blood sacrifice? He just gets right to the heart of the matter. And just like he did in the garden after Adam and Eve ate from the tree, he doesn't make accusations. He doesn't make immediate judgments. He continues to ask questions. Verse 7 is really hard to translate. I like how Everett Fox kind of gives a, a literal translation of it in the five books of Moses. He translated it as, Yahweh said to Cain, why are you so upset? Why has your face fallen? Is it not thus? If you intend good, bear it aloft. But if you do not intend good, at the entrance is sin, a crouching demon, toward you his lust, but you can rule over him. The Net Bible notes point out that the Hebrew text is very difficult here because there's actually only one word after if you intend good, and it's the word aloft, or to lift up, or to bear up. It literally reads, if you do well, uplifting. And what exactly that means is not entirely certain, but it definitely seems to be in contrast to the fallen face that Cain had. So his face fell, but God is offering uplifting toward him. God will still show him favor. He's not angry with Cain at all. And I think that just like Cain's face may have shown some disappointment, I don't know if Cain could have seen God here or not in some sort of a physical manifestation, or if he was just speaking up into the clouds. We don't know. But I think God was showing him a lot of love and grace and even acceptance at this point. I like how Walter Brueggemann pointed out that even though Cain's face fell, he himself has not yet fallen. He is not the victim of an original sin, Brueggemann says. He can choose and act for the good. Such an affirmation by the narrator suggests that chapter 3 must not be permitted to control chapter 4. Cain in this story is free and capable of faithful living. End quote. You can also compare a passage out of number 6 that is part of the high priestly blessing, and that speaks of Yahweh lifting up the face of his children and giving peace. So I think there may even be a little bit of comparison contrast going on there, and I think there's even a little hint at something more to come in the fact that the word used of Cain's face falling is the Hebrew word nafal. Now, if you're familiar with nafal and the Nephilim from chapter 6, that I think could all kind of play a little bit together. But if you're not familiar with that, don't worry, we will get to that in a few weeks when we get to chapter 6. Just realize that this might be foreshadowing a little bit of what is to come there. Brueggemann and others have alluded to the statements made by the character Lee in John Steinbeck's novel East of Eden, where Lee draws on the meaning of the Hebrew word timshal, translated may or should rule at the end. quote from the book goes, Don't you see, Lee cried, the American Standard Translation orders men to triumph over sin. The King James translation makes a promise in thou shalt, meaning that men will surely triumph over sin. But the Hebrew word, the word timshal, thou mayst, that, that gives a choice. It might be the most important word in the world. That says the way is open. That throws it right back on the man. 
For if thou mayest, it is also true, thou mayest not. Now, I think uh, Steinbeck was reading a little bit into the text there, but he does highlight a really important point that the key to this is the choice that Cain is given. He is not forced to make a decision one way or the other. He is not predestined to give in to sin. He has the opportunity to live in the same blessing that God gave to Abel. There's also a little bit of an ongoing debate about how exactly to translate the end of the verse. Because the old King James says, If you do not well, sin lies at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Nearly every other translation that I can find reworks the text to suggest that sin is the one who is desiring Cain, but Cain has the opportunity to rule over it. So sin has a desire for you, sin is lusting after you, but you can rule over sin. In other words, you can make the right decision. And that is very possible. This is a very, very difficult verse to translate well over into Hebrew. But given the way that the pronouns are set up, I think there's another option that kind of fits the King James way a little bit better. It's not that sin desired to take Cain and that Cain could rule over it, but rather him. The him being Abel. I think that God was saying that Abel's desire was going to be to Cain, and that Cain could rule over him. And the reason I say that aside from the use of masculine pronouns rather than feminine that would have gone with the word sin, is that it maps on to the words used in chapter 3 when God says that the woman's desire would be toward the man, but he would rule over her. So it's the exact same language out of that passage. And remember, we talked about this last week, that was not a good thing. That was saying that her desire would be subject to her husband, and he would often be the one to make the final call regardless of what she wanted. So I think that God is actually saying, you have a choice here, where if you do what is right, you will still get to be the privileged one in the family. You'll actually get that position that you want. Abel's desires will be subject to yours, and you will be the one to rule over him. That doesn't necessarily mean that God is saying that was a good thing, that Cain should rule over Abel. But he's saying, you actually have the opportunity to get what you want here, if you'll just be patient, if you'll just live in the blessing that is available to both of you. But of course, as we're about to find out, Cain decides to take matters into his own hands. But before we get there, we have to pause and talk about sin. Because even though people will call what Adam and Eve did the first sin, the word sin never shows up in the first three chapters of Genesis. This verse here is the first time the word shows up. That doesn't necessarily mean that what Adam and Eve did in the garden wasn't sinful, but I think it's very significant that you have the story about the failure of humans, the very first one that gets them kicked out of the garden, and yet sin never shows up as a word in the entire story. It would make so much sense to put it there, but the authors didn't. They waited until right here. I think part of the point of that is that sin is being compared to the serpent from the garden. A lot of translations will say that sin is lying or crouching at the door. Uh, really, it's animalistic language. It's saying that sin is a croucher at your door, pictured almost like a, a lion ready to pounce on him. And I think it kind of has the same imagery of just like how Adam and Eve sinned because of a serpent, a Nakash, Cain has an animal tempting him in this story as well, but it is the animal sin. Some have even pointed to a similar Akkadian word that refers to a type of demon, and so they would translate it as sin is like a demon at your door. I think uh, E.A. Spicer noted this in his Genesis commentary. But what is most significant to me here is that sin is not a falling short or a breaking of the rules. It is an aggressive force from outside Cain 
that is trying to get in. When I was a kid, we learned the definition that sin is anything we think, say, or do that breaks God's law. And when I was in college, we defined sin as falling short or missing the mark. And while there may be something to some of those definitions, that's not the picture given here. Sin is something outside of Cain, is something outside of us that's trying to get in. It's not something inside of us that's trying to get out. I wonder what might happen if we were to change the way that we viewed sin. So many of us feel like we just have this monster inside of us that is trying to do wrong at all times and we have to keep it down. But that's not the picture of the Bible. That might be the picture religion gives you, but that's not the image the Bible gives. Sin is not some internal force that you have to keep from showing. It's something outside of you that you have to keep from getting in to the good person that God created. That's a very different way of viewing sin than what we're usually taught. But that's the picture of it right here on the first couple of pages of the Bible and the very first time the word shows up. So I do think that's worth considering. As we move into verse 8, we have a phrase that seems to be missing. Verse 8 reads, And Cain talked with Abel his brother. It came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother and slew him. It feels like there's a break here. The text says that they were talking, but there's no actual mention of what is said. And in fact, certain traditions have added into this verse that Cain suggested they go out into the field, making it premeditated murder on Cain's part. And that is possible. Uh, several translations have looked at older manuscripts and added that in here, thinking that may have actually been removed by mistake. So it seems to fit better when you have that little statement by Cain of let's go into the field. And remember, that is often beasts that are out in the field in the text. They're often called beasts of the field. But now we have humans going out into the field, and Cain is about to act like a beast of the field in how he treats his brother. It's also worth noting that the word brother shows up seven times in this story. And Cain rises up against Abel, and it's as if Cain is thinking, if God wants blood, I will give him blood. Let's see if he accepts this offering. I think it's presented like Cain was sacrificing Abel to God. And that just feels straight out of a horror movie to me. There has been no human death up until this point. And some people have actually looked at Cain's reaction when God questions him, and he says, I don't know where he is, am I my brother's keeper? Some people have thought that maybe Cain really didn't know. This might have been the first time a human has ever died. So did he know that doing whatever he did to his brother killed him? And we're not told exactly what he did, if he slit his throat, if he beat him with a rock, if he just punched him, strangled him, we don't know. But I think there's a little bit of an implication in the text that Cain definitely knew. Especially since Abel sacrificed animals, I think it could very well be that Cain killed Abel in the same way that Abel killed the animals, presenting the corpse of his brother like a sacrifice. Yahweh approaches him and says, Where is Abel your brother? And he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? There's a little bit of a play on words there in English with Abel being a keeper of the sheep and Cain claiming not to be a keeper of his brother. It's not the same word in Hebrew, but I think that is a, a bit clever when English translations do that. God responds to him, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. This doesn't translate well over into English, but the word for blood is plural. There are other times in the Hebrew Bible where this happens. Isaiah 4, 4, Isaiah 26, 21, Hosea 1, 4. So some people have looked at the different times that blood shows up in the plural and suggested that when it does, it stands for violently shed blood that must be avenged. Something like the phrase, 
rivers of blood, as taken from Gesenius' Hebrew grammar. I see something to that, because the only exception I could find when I did a little bit of digging on this, of a plural not referring to violently shed blood, is in Leviticus 12 through 20, in times when it's talking about the blood of a woman's period. I don't see that as coincidental with how much blood means in the Levitical law, and every other time it shows up in the plural, it's talking about very violently shed blood. I don't know, I I think there could be something to all of that put together in the minds of an ancient writer. The Bible Project has also done a really good job of pointing out the difference between oil and blood as a sacrifice. Oil was supposed to run down a person to the ground as they were consecrated to Yahweh, but blood was never supposed to run down to the ground. When blood is outside of the body, it is considered an unclean substance. Blood is supposed to go up to God, oil is supposed to go down. And so the very fact that blood seeped into the ground is what caught God's attention. And so this begins a theme of God's responding to the cries of the oppressed and the abused in society. Again, the Bible Project has done a study on this as well. It's a really good one where they pointed out that the moral quality of the person crying out is not as important as the fact that they do. There's even a couple of passages in Ezekiel and Jeremiah where God tells the prophets to stop crying out on behalf of the Israelites because he would be obliged to respond to them if they do when he really just wants to bring judgment on them. So when blood hits the ground, God hears. When somebody is oppressed or abused in society, they may be overlooked by others, but God sees, God hears, he cares, and he acts. It gets his attention. No matter what else is going on, if there's a consistent theme in scripture, it's that God notices when people are hurting. Verse 11 brings the sentencing on Cain. Now you are cursed from the land, which has opened her mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will not any more yield to you its strength. A fugitive and a vagabond you will be in the earth. So God punishes him through the agency of the ground implying that the ground is the one who told on him. It gave him up. And it's important to realize that even though Cain is the first person in the biblical story to be cursed, this is not curse in the sense of a hex. It's nothing weird. It's just basically a disenfranchisement or a banishment from the land. And while we can have all kinds of discussion on what it meant for Cain to be cursed as a person, I think it's really important that we notice that if there was ever an opportunity for God to enact the death penalty and have it make sense, This is that time. This is literally the first murder in the entirety of human history, and yet God doesn't kill the murderer. Instead, he gives him grace, like he gave to Cain's parents. I realize this discussion could get very political very quick, so I'm going to try to sidestep all of that. But when Christians choose to support the death penalty for crimes, I just always think of this passage, and I ponder why God didn't do the same. In the perfect opportunity for him to kill a murderer, he chose to give him grace instead. And make of that what you will, but it's definitely thought-provoking. Now, all of that aside, I am not sure that fugitive and vagabond are the best words to describe Cain. The Hebrew words are an and nod. And nod is kind of a play on where Cain goes in verse 16. It's the land of nod. In English, it looks like nod, but in Hebrew, it would be pronounced nod. So he is going to be a nod and goes to the land of Nod, so you can hear the similarity there. And it's because Cain rejected family by murdering family, family would reject him. He would be banished from society. You could translate the words as wandering and aimless. I even see a little bit of a parallel to the wild and wasteness of the earth before creation. 
Cain is now like a wild and waste person himself. Different words, but I think it's kind of the same idea that he is wandering and aimless in the land. With that, note though that God never condemned him to be on the run. And that's why I don't like the use of the word fugitive. It's a great movie, but not a great description of what Cain is. Because God never said he had to be on the run from other people. He just said that his life would be aimless or wandering at this point. So just like Cain read into God's favor of Abel, disfavor toward him, he now reads into the punishment and assumes that he's being driven from God. Look at verse 13. Cain says to Yahweh, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me out this day from the face of the earth. It's not true, though. God never said you are cast out from the earth. He said that the land would be harder to work, but he didn't say that he had to go on the lamb from everybody else. But that's how Cain hears it. He says, you've driven me out this day from the face of the earth. From your face I will be hidden. That's not what God said. God never said, leave my presence. But Cain's assuming this just means I have to go hide from you. I will be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. It will come to pass that everyone who finds me will kill me. Cain reads into his punishment that he is being driven from God in order to be killed by other people. But God never said to leave my presence. When we're little, we often get the idea that if a parent is angry at something that we do and we're being punished, that the parent doesn't want us to be around them, that, that we're just forced out of the presence of that parent until they decide to be happy with us again. And I kind of see that here in Cain, that he is assuming God's disposition toward him, when God is really just saying, there are consequences to your actions. God is not saying, I hate you, get away from me. He's saying, because you did this, you're not going to be able to be the farmer that you used to be. You used to be able to settle down in one place and farm the ground. Now you're not going to be able to do that because your life is going to feel meaningless. It's going to feel aimless. You're going to be looking over your shoulder, wondering what other people are doing, so you can't stay in one place anymore. But Cain took all of that to mean that God wasn't happy with him and wanted nothing to do with him anymore. I think we do that with God all of the time. We tend to assume greater guilt and punishment than God puts on us. I think that's the part that religion plays in a lot of our psyche, that it's put into us this thought that God is completely ticked off at us whenever we do anything wrong and is just a miracle of the grace of God that he doesn't immediately zap us off the earth. That's not healthy to be teaching people. I'm not saying that we should be teaching people to do whatever they want and God doesn't give a crap. There are consequences when wrong decisions are made, but that does not mean that God wants you out of his sight or wishes he had never created you or is ready to zap you at a moment's notice. That's not the picture of the Bible. If anything, the Bible is showing us that we read that into God's view of us when he never actually says that. With that, we don't know exactly how Cain was responding to this because his words can be taken a couple of different ways. Go figure, right? At this point, hopefully you're starting to realize that there's always another way that you can view the text. When he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear, that word that is translated punishment, or sometimes it's translated sin, it's the Hebrew word avon. And avon, especially in some of the older translations, was often translated as iniquity. It's a word that can mean sin or iniquity, transgression, basically the idea of crooked or wrong dealings with another person. It can also refer to guilt or even punishment. So you have three different ways of viewing this. Cain could be saying, my actions are too much for me to carry. In other words, he's realized the gravity of what he's done, and he doesn't feel like he can live with himself after taking life from someone else. 
So it could be that. It could be that he's saying the guilt of what he did is too much to bear. Or it could be his saying that his punishment is too much to bear, that he thinks God is being too harsh on him. The first two options make him sound a little more repentant, like he has understood the severity of his actions, whereas if you take it to mean punishment, he would come across as being unrepentant. Either way, it is interesting that we actually get to see him debate with God, whereas Adam and Eve just seem to accept their fate. We're only given a little bit of their reaction to what God said. We're not given any dialogue that they may have had with him. It's also worth noting that there are other passages in scripture that describe God as bearing sin away from people. So for Cain to be saying that he is taking that on, he might be missing the point that God is willing to take that from him if he makes right what he did. But considering the ways that Cain reacted by saying, basically, God, you forced my parents out of the garden and you're forcing me out of the land as a whole, at least with my parents, it was just the garden, but now you're forcing me just out of the land completely just like my parents had to hide in the tree, now I have to hide from you. I think it's meant to show us that he was still bitter about all of this, and he was actually just continuing to further spiral down the path that he had taken. So as a wanderer moving forward, he's basically going to take up the life of his brother. A farmer had a stationary life, whereas a shepherd was someone who was constantly moving around with his flock. So he is now living the life that he took from his brother. Now, we have to discuss the fear that Cain brings up at the end of verse 14. It will come to pass that whoever finds me will kill me. This has led a lot of people to scratch their heads because the only people in the story so far are Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel, and Abel's off the scene, so Adam, Eve, and Cain. So why didn't he just say, if my parents see me, they'll kill me? Why does he say that all who find me will kill me? The implication seems to be that there were other humans at this time. Now, it could be that these were other children of Adam and Eve. Again, we just know at the start of chapter 5 that Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. We don't know how helpful that is because we're not sure exactly when to count year one in Adam's life. But 130 years is a long time to have kids. So it is very possible that even if they just had one kid every year, and once those kids got to an age where they could parent, they had a kid every year... Uh, and so forth and so on, it's a pretty exponential process by which you could get a large number of human beings on the earth at this time. Or others, coming from a theistic evolution perspective, have assumed that there were other people groups that existed outside of the Garden before the stories of Genesis 1 and 2. Because Genesis 1 through 3 is focused on the Garden specifically, and God's picking out two representative humans. And in order for them to represent, it kind of implies that there were other people they were representing. I think most people just assume that was future generations. Some have suggested that there were other prehistoric human groups around at this time, and that these are the people that Cain is now afraid that he will run into the further away he gets from the garden. I know the first time you hear that, it can sound like a pretty ridiculous idea, but the more I've studied that, the more it does kind of make sense. Ultimately, I don't think either perspective was on the minds of the authors of the Hebrew text. They weren't writing this thinking, oh yeah, we have to prove where all these other people came from. They're trying to tell their story, and we're coming in with our modern mindset that has to give a reason for every little detail, and we're trying to figure this out. Well, that's not the question that they were trying to answer. It's worth considering, and you can either say that these were all siblings of Cain's that were born in the years between leaving the garden and this happening, or you could even say it was other human populations on the earth at that time. Now, this continues to be an issue because when Cain does leave, verse 
17 says that he knew his wife and she conceived. So a classic question comes up of where did Cain get his wife? And you're pretty much left with those two options. Either all of the people descended specifically just from Adam and Eve, at which point that means this was a relative of Cain, or you would have to say that there were other human populations on the earth at this time. Now, if it was a relative of Cain, I know that sounds weird. <laughs> it would possibly be a sister or could even be 15th cousin twice removed. You don't know. Once you start thinking of Adam and Eve having a lot of children over all of these different years, you have the possibility for the earth to fill up very fast. And some have suggested that if their genetics were more pure at the time of creation, there wouldn't have been as much of an issue with marrying close relatives. And after just a few generations, it really would not have become much of a problem anymore. It's possible. Ultimately, we don't know how many children Adam and Eve had. Jewish tradition tended to say about 56. Uh, at least that's what Josephus said. So that's a lot. You could get your own reality TV show today on TLC for that. But that's still a far cry from one kid every year when Adam lived to be around 900 years old. No matter which position you take on that, it's not the key point that the text is trying to say, and there are options that could work either way, whether you would say that Cain married a sibling, or a relative of some sort, or someone from a different human population. So in answer to his fear, God places a mark. He says in verse 15, Whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. So Yahweh set a mark upon Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Technically, this was a sign to Cain. The Hebrew does not specify that it was on him. I think that's what a lot of people assume. At least when I was younger, I always kind of imagined it was like the Harry Potter you know, lightning symbol on the forehead. Like, I, I just pictured that with Cain. But the text does not specifically say it was on him. It says this is a sign to Cain. And we don't know what it was. But that being said, signs in the Bible were usually something physical, something that could be pointed to and said, this is tangible evidence. It's the same word for how the sun and the moon were signs. It's also the same word for the token of the rainbow in Genesis 9. So all of that considered, I kind of wonder if there is a little bit of an astrological connection to it, especially when you consider Jude 11 and 13 mentioning Cain and wandering stars or planets all in the same passage. I'm not sure of that. I, I'm kind of thinking it probably wasn't just like a mark on his forehead. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but it's definitely a fun rabbit hole that you can go down. What really interests me is that God prevents not just killing of Cain. The word used there makes it sound like God is actually preventing any violence at all enacted upon Cain. But still, after all of this, Cain leaves the presence of Yahweh and dwells in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Notice again the connection between exile and death through all of this, as well as the symbolism of the further east you go, the further away from God you're moving. And I will point out that this is a choice that Cain made. God never banished him from his presence. Cain just saw it as something that he needed to do in his life. And here's where a lot of people stop the story, because moving forward we get a lot of names. It's basically a little mini genealogy of Cain's family tree. A lot of people get bored or frustrated at trying to pronounce names that very clearly aren't English names. But you need all of these genealogies that are going to show up in the next several chapters if you are going to trace the lines of the woman and of the serpent. In fact, we'll get more into the idea of biblical genealogies and how to read them next week when we're in chapter 5. But there is very striking similarity between the names here in chapter 4 and the names of Seth's descendants in chapter 5. 
Oh, we haven't gotten there yet, but Seth is the third son that's born to Adam and Eve, and he continues on the line of the woman, whereas Cain continues on the line of the serpent. It's very interesting to see almost identical names in both lines, as it becomes increasingly harder to tell who is a part of the line of the woman and who is a part of the line of the serpent. I think the text is kind of suggesting to us that anyone, even a descendant of Seth, can act like a serpent, like we're going to see with Jacob eventually in the text. And anyone, even a descendant of Cain, can be someone who helps to redeem God's people, like we will see in some later stories. So Cain goes out and he builds a city. And there's all kinds of significance around his building a city. When we think of a city today, we think of something like New York or London or Tokyo, you know, something massive with all these different skyscrapers and all. But in Bible times, a city was basically a village with a wall around it. And the idea was you had people who lived on their own, you had families that lived together, and then sometimes families would choose to live with other families. And when enough of those did that together, you had a little bit of a community going on. But we as human beings tend to fear people who are not a part of our community. So sometimes people decided it would be a good idea to put a wall up around their community to protect from people who were outside of their community. And that's basically the definition of a city in the ancient world is it's nothing massive like we think of now. As time goes on, they get bigger. But at its very core structure, it's just a group of settlements together with a wall around it. So don't miss the significance of this. Even though God promised Cain protection, he decides to go out and make it on his own. He is literally invincible to anybody ever doing harm to him, and yet he decides that he needs to build a walled enclosure for himself and his family. There's also a really fascinating wordplay going on with the words for helper, skin, nakedness, city, and even sign. The Bible Project talked about this in their podcast episode of Q&R for the city. Definitely recommend checking that out. They dive into the Hebrew words there in way more depth than I have the time to hear. But they draw some really fascinating comparisons that I think have something to them. So Cain names the city after his son, Hanok. A lot of English translations will say Enoch, but in Hebrew it would be Chanok. And this is not the same Enoch necessarily that you'd think of from the one who walked with God. We'll get to that in chapter 5. Just remember, these names kind of overlap a lot between the two family lines. So to Yanok was born Irad, and Machuyel fathers Methushael. Methushael fathers Lamech. Lamech is a very interesting character, and his name is basically an inversion of the Hebrew word for king. You have the word melech, and here you have lamech, so it just kind of switches the first and third letters. And he is like an anti-king. He is definitely a big bad guy in this story. He is living out the violence and destruction of Cain, but on a much larger scale. And the first thing we're told about him is that he takes to himself two wives. The name of the one is Adah, the name of the other is Zilah. So he is the first recorded polygamist in scripture, but I don't think that's the focus necessarily, because the ancient culture that the Bible was written in would have been okay with polygamy, so I don't think this was necessarily an indictment on that aspect of his character. What I do think it's pointing out is that his taking seems violent. There are other ways that it could say that he married two women, but it specifically says that he took them, and it's kind of violent terminology. I think it could even be seen as his raping them. Then we're told about four children that he has, Yabal, Yubal, and Tubal-Kain. In Hebrew, they didn't necessarily have that J sound, it would have been a Y sound, so Yabal, Yubal, and Tubal-Kain. And then we're given his daughter's name of Nama. Now it's really easy to tune out here because there are a lot of very Hebrew names that don't sound familiar at all to us, but 
it's still a really important part of the passage, because I think this anti-king that we have in Lamech is presented as having an anti-Eden family. There's all kinds of debate about the meanings of the names of his children, but there's one position that suggests that Yabal, Yubal, and Tublacain are related to words for stream, brook, and creek. If we remember back to chapter 2, four rivers are said to go out of Eden. So from Cain's line through Lamech, we get four children, three of which have names that are river-sounding, and then you get the fourth one's name, Naamah, which many think means delight, which was the meaning of Eden. So it's like they are presenting a little anti-Eden establishment in this family. It is really unique, though, that Nama is mentioned, no matter what you think her name means, because each of her brothers are listed as important for history. Jabal, or Yabal, is said to be the father of those who dwell in tents. In other words, nomadic people. When you have that phrase, father of, it's like we might say that somebody is a father of modern medicine or chemistry or something like that, saying that they are the starting point of a particular way of doing something. So he was the first nomad. And then you have his brother, Yubal, who is the father of musicians, and Tuolkain, a father of metal workers. And then his sister being mentioned. It doesn't say what she does, but Robert Alter in his translation commentary suggested that maybe she was supposed to be in connection to her half-brother, Yubal. Maybe she was the singer accompanying his music. Speaking of music... When Lemek speaks to his wives, he uses very poetic language, which I think is significant because the last poem that we read in scripture was God's speech to Cain about murder, and the last human to speak in a poem in scripture was Adam at the start of Eve's life. So just like God spoke poetically to Cain after the murder, Lemek is about to do the same, but regarding himself. So he says to his wives, Ye wives of Lemek, hearken to my speech, listen to me. I have killed a young man to my wounding and a young man to my heart. If Cain will be avenged sevenfold, truly Lemek seventy and sevenfold. The idea is basically that he killed somebody, and he's saying that if God will protect Cain for killing somebody, surely he will protect me. A lot of people add in the thought that it might have been self-defense, where he's saying if God was willing to protect Cain, who was obviously in the wrong, well, of course he's going to protect me when it wasn't even my fault to begin with. But I think that misses the point, because Lemech is very boastful here. He's acting as if he's entitled to God's protection. In fact, some people would even say that he was stating this as a potential rather than something that happened in the past. So rather than saying, I have killed a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt, he might have been saying, I will kill. In other words, he's threatening to act out this way. It could go either way, depending on how you translate the text. And just like earlier in chapter 4, where the sacrifices were drawing on Levitical language, here this draws very specifically on the language from Exodus 21, 23 to 25, with the mention of wounding and bruising. That text reads, If any mischief follow, you will give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And so this is where we get the very popular idea of an eye for an eye. The author has Lemek using this wording that's from a passage well into the future, but drawing on that because it was about retributive justice. The eye for the eye rule was not saying, if you punch me, I can punch you back. It's saying that if you punch me, I can only punch you back. See, people always look at that passage and they're like, eye for eye, you did something to me, I can do the same thing to you or worse. But the point of the passage was not that at all. 
it was don't do worse than the person did to you. Because ultimately, if you punch me, my inclination is going to be to do more than that to you, to get not just even, but to get back. And so eye for an eye was saying, you can't do worse than what the other person did to you. The punishment has to fit the crime. So it's this retributive justice idea that was supposed to keep combat from happening. It was supposed to prevent vigilante justice from people going out and just trying to get back however they deemed necessary. But that is exactly what Lemek is doing here, saying, I am going to be judge, jury, and executioner. We have no clue exactly who Lemek was threatening or saying that he killed here. Some people think that it's saying he killed both a man and a child, because that word for young man, it's someone before the age of adulthood. But it could also just be poetry or parallelism, since he is speaking in a poetic way. It could just be talking about one person. Either way, it is not a good thing. And he is speaking very boastfully, saying that I deserve God's protection just as much as anybody else does. Interestingly enough, there were some Jewish traditions that said that Lamech killed Cain. I don't know how exactly that would fit in with Mark, but it's, it's a fun idea. Verse 25 switches us back over to Adam and Eve. So I think we kind of go back in time a little bit here. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For God, said she, has appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. Going back to the whole debate about whether or not Adam and Eve were repentant, or how they viewed Yahweh after all this, there does seem to be a change between the birth of Cain and the birth of Seth in her mind. Because when Cain is born, she's the focus. She says, I have created, and whether you think that's with Yahweh or in place of Yahweh, she's still the focus. Where here, she very specifically says, for God has appointed me another seed instead of Abel. So it seems that she now acknowledges God's place after the death of Abel and the ostracization of Cain. Either way, there's this really cool little pattern you get in the Bible where three comes out of one. So you have Adam, who had three sons. Noah also had three sons. Abraham has three generations of descendants that end in 12 families. Then after Moses, 12 judges come to power. And then after them, you get three major prophets in the story, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then 12 minor prophets. So you kind of get these patterns of three and multiple to three coming out of the story moving forward. Oh, and with this whole thing about numbers, too, I forgot to mention this when we were talking about Lemek, but go figure that on Cain's side, there are only six generations after him mentioned. So we only get six generations on Cain's side. Just kind of interesting, especially with some of the significance that six and seven play in the biblical story, that of all the places you could end his genealogy, the author chooses to do so at the sixth line. I think it's showing the corruption of Cain's line, because obviously there were children that came after that, but this is where the author decides to end the story for us of Cain's line and move back to Adam and Eve and then eventually Seth. And curiously, this chapter ends with just one mention of a child born to Seth before we begin a whole other list of generations, a whole other family tree genealogy. So verse 26 of this says to Seth, there was also born a son, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Nearly every version I could find says that it was at the time of Enosh that people began to call upon or worship Yahweh. But literally, the phrase reads, Then he was profaned to proclaim in the name of Yahweh. Most people take this verse to mean something along the lines of people began to worship Yahweh at this point. But that really doesn't hold up well when you consider the sacrifices that Cain and Abel offered earlier in the chapter. Like, those were to Yahweh. 
So people did worship Yahweh. It, it wasn't just after Seth's firstborn that people did that. Some people suggest it was that people began to be named after Yahweh, like they added Yahweh's name into their name, or the word El for God into their name. But you have that in Cain's genealogy as well, so that doesn't really line up very well. It's really difficult to translate over into English, because the phrase, he was profane to proclaim in the name of Yahweh, just doesn't make a ton of sense. At least until you realize that the word men or people or humans is not in this verse. So where most translations say that people or men or humanity began to call on the name of Yahweh, it's actually he. Just he began. He was profaned to proclaim the name of Yahweh. So I think that this is talking about Seth. I think it's saying that Seth was profaned. He was cursed. He was ostracized by proclaiming the name of Yahweh. We've just had a whole list of Cain's descendants and how they lived out the failure of Cain and just carried that on, ending in Lamech and his children. So I think that Seth was trying to live in the way of Yahweh amongst family members that weren't doing the same. So they profaned him. They cursed him. They mocked him because he chose to worship Yahweh. I'll also point out that Enosh's name means man. So you have, at the start and end of these genealogies, someone whose name means man or human in Adam and Enosh. So they're basically synonyms for each other. Alright, how are we feeling, folks? We have made it all the way through chapter 4. I want to talk through a few different perspectives that people have brought to the text, get into a, a couple of nerdy things here. We've covered the sibling rivalry between Cain and Abel that begins a theme of sibling rivalry through the rest of the Bible. You have stories like Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, Moses and Pharaoh, David and his brothers, and it just goes on and on. We could list so many others. As well as a theme of God's privileging the less important people in society to lift them up to the same status. We also covered the theme of God's responding to the cries of the oppressed and abused in society. And we noted similarities between the Adam and Eve story and the Cain and Abel story. The Bible Project has gone into some detail on this. Actually, in their Jonah class, they have a, a whole section on their website called Classroom. Really awesome. Highly recommend it for anyone who wants to get into some really nerdy Bible study. And the Jonah class is about Jonah, but it's really a class on how to study the Bible. And so they pull on examples from all uh, different parts of Scripture. And one of the examples they pull of showing parallelism between stories is right here in chapter 4, with the comparison between the story in chapter 3 and the one here in chapter 4. And they note that in both stories, humans are given a significant choice, but for an unstated reason. Adam and Eve are not specifically told why they can't eat from the tree. Cain is not specifically told why his sacrifice wasn't favored the same way that Abel's was. Both are tempted by an animal. The serpent, the Nakash, with Adam and Eve, and the croucher of sin with Cain. In both stories, the humans give into the temptation with destructive consequences. In both stories, God shows up asking a question. Then the human dodges the question. The perpetrator is cursed, working the ground becomes more difficult, and the human is banished from or leaves God's presence. Does need to see the way that the authors have structured the same pattern in both stories. And much like with the creation story and the flood narratives, this story of Cain and Abel has parallels with the stories of other ancient cultures as well. In particular, many people have noted a similarity with the story The Courtship of Inanna and Dumazid. Dumazid was a shepherd who fought with a farmer called Enkidu, 
and wins. So you have a shepherd fighting a farmer, and the shepherd wins. That's the reverse of the story that we have with Cain and Abel. Then there's another story called Enlil Chooses the Farmer God. Whoever named that, way to give the ending up right up front. Enlil Chooses the Farmer God. And like you can probably guess, in this story, there is a character named Enlil, it's a god, who chooses to bless a farmer god named Enten over a shepherd god named Emish. And that sounds similar to our story, where you have a farmer being blessed over a shepherd. But again, ours was reversed. I think it's also worth noting that nowadays in our modern culture, farmers and herdsmen are kind of both considered country people. At least that's always how I viewed it. But in the ancient world, farmers were seen as city folk because they didn't move around. The herdsmen moved around constantly because they had to keep their flocks and you know whatever animals they had moving to new pasture land. But farmers had to stay in one place with their plants and all. So some scholars have zoomed out from the details of this story to see a bigger picture commentary on the urbanization of society, where cities tend to overpower agrarian societies. I think Bible Project touched a bit on this in their podcast about the city. It's not something I think we're meant to make too much of in the text, but it is an interesting perspective. It's been a couple weeks, but I have mentioned before the point of view that some of these stories were compiled around the time of David. And so you have connections written into the stories from the time of David, uh, particularly with the story of Judah and Tamar, and the only other time you have a character named Tamar is in David's family. So you kind of get some of those connections here as well, where you have brother killing brother. Like, that is all over the story of David's family and the political intrigue that goes on there. So talking about that is well beyond the scope of what I'm trying to do here. But Pete Enns has some very accessible material that touches on that if you're interested in learning more about that perspective. And I'll throw out one other here that might not be as familiar to people. And it's the idea that is presented by open and relational theologians. And these are going to be people who would look at some of the strange appearances near the beginning of Scripture where God asks a lot of questions. He asks Adam, where are you? He asks Cain, what have you done? And they take those very literally, suggesting that maybe God didn't know the answers and that it was only later on in the story that his followers began to attribute omniscience to him. They would say that he didn't know what happened to Abel until he got close enough to hear the blood crying up to him. It is kind of an interesting theory, and while I don't think too many mainstream Christians accept that, there is something to be said for the fact that ideas about God have grown and morphed, changed throughout time, and you can even see a little bit of a difference in the way that God is described and the way that he acts from earlier in Scripture until the time that you get around the prophets. There is a trend that you can see. I realize that this view can sound like heresy to people a lot of times. Uh, Of course God knows everything. Of course he's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. But those are theology terms and not necessarily Bible terms. And sure, people can cherry-pick verses out and try to put them behind a topic and say, see, this proves that God is this. But the Bible is a story. It is a narrative. And stories grow as time goes on and, and characters develop. So I don't think that someone is a heretic just because they take that position. I don't necessarily take that myself, but I am intrigued by that study just because it is not as well known. I think probably the most prominent thinker in that camp is Thomas J. Ord. He's written a good bit on this topic, and his stuff is pretty accessible for people who aren't familiar with it. So I just wanted to throw that out there as another interesting rabbit hole that you can go down. (laughs) 
Out of all the things that we covered this week, I think one of the most significant is how we view God and the way that he responds to us, especially when we do something wrong. See, we often think that God responds angrily, but in all of this, he never did. There was never a mention of God's being angry at Cain or or any other humans. It's the humans who get angry with each other and impose their ideas of anger onto God. Though I think we have to be really careful not to read in our idea of how we think God views us when he really may not actually view us that way. And it's good to stop and ask, do I think God sees me this way because that's been my experience or because that is what religion has taught me? See, religion will tell you that you are separated from God, but God will tell you, I moved out of the garden to be with you. Religion will tell you your sin drives you out from the presence of God, and God will tell you, I never said that. I'm still here with you even after you sin, even after you make mistakes, even after you're not the person that you could be or want to be. I'm with you to help you become that person. It's really interesting to me that when we think that God looks on us with disfavor, we start to look at others the same way. It wasn't until Cain saw God as being angry at him that he became angry at his brother and killed him. So be careful how you view God. If you think that God is constantly ticked off at you and just barely kept back from hating you because of Jesus, then there's a good chance that you're going to start to view other people with the same disdain that you think God views you with. Our relationship with other people becomes skewed when our relationship with God is skewed. I also find it fascinating that the first recorded sin outside of the garden was because someone didn't like someone else's way of worshiping God. Cain couldn't accept that God would accept a form of worship that was different than his. And if that doesn't sum up the majority of fights that Christians get into, I don't know what does. Even today, thousands of years later, we are still living out the same cycle that Cain got himself stuck in, where we assume the way that God views us and we react to other people because of that, and we use and abuse other humans because we think that there isn't enough in the world for both of us to exist in God's blessing. But the message of scripture is that it doesn't have to be that way. I want to close out by reading Psalm 133. It's really short. It's only three verses. And it's like a reversal of the Cain and Abel story. It reads, Look at how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like fragrant oil upon the head, running down upon the beard, the beard of Aaron, that runs down upon the edge of his robe. It's like the dew of Hermon that runs down upon the mountains of Zion. Because there, Yahweh commanded the blessing, life forever. This short little psalm is packed full of imagery from all over the Bible. It draws on priestly images of Aaron and oil running down the beard. I think that's even in contrast to the blood that ran down from Abel. Verse 3 talks about the blessing that God is willing to give in abundant life for anyone who will choose to live in his blessing. But how does that happen? Verse 1 when brothers dwell together in unity. And I don't think that has to mean biological brothers. It means humans. When we as a human race, as human brothers and sisters together, will come together and find ways to live in unity, in the blessing of God, in being okay when someone else seems more successful than we are, when we are able to share the successes that we have with people who don't have them, that is good. And good reminds us of God's creation before our failure in the garden. That word pleasant, it's a synonym for the word Eden that means delightful. How good, how Eden-like you could even say is it when humans get together 
and are willing to live not like Cain and Abel, but like garden humans. People who have enough all around them and are willing to share what they have with others. That truly is a good and beautiful world. And that is the ideal of scripture. I think it is even an ideal that is lived out in Jesus and one that we can each live out a little bit of each day when we choose to be a part of the line of the woman instead of the line of the serpent. Amen. Next week, chapter five. And as always, we will have plenty of fun discussions and new perspectives to learn. So till then, stay curious and keep asking questions about the uncut and unfiltered Bible. You've been listening to The Bible Uncut and Unfiltered. We hope we provide a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to share it with a friend. You can also rate and review on your podcast app to help other people find it. If you'd like to donate to keep our work going, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash thebibleuncut, where you'll get exclusive access to bonus content. You can also check out our website, thebibleuncut.com, for recommended resources and more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.